You're listening to the Complete Human Podcast with me, Evan DeMarco. And me, Jana Breslin. A podcast where we combine our decades of experience as health and wellness experts to educate you on how to bio-optimize your way to becoming a complete human. We are on a mission to inspire the necessary change we need to ensure a thriving existence for all. That's why with every episode, we bring you real science, deeper intelligence, and actionable takeaways in hopes of not only changing the trajectory of your health, but changing the trajectory of the entire human race. Are you ready to become a complete human? Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the Complete Human Podcast with your hosts, Jana Breslin and Evan DeMarco. Today is another rapid fire, and this one I'm pretty excited about. I get these questions all the time. I know you get these questions all the time, especially in the dietary supplement space. This was something that I dealt with almost on a daily basis. So I'm excited to tackle food labels. Such a hot topic. It is, especially if you put it in the microwave. Wow. Is that a dad joke? It was a dad joke. That's good. That's good. Yeah, food labels, that's something that we've heard of, you know, there's so many different types and like thing. It's just, there's so much out there mm-hmm. and it's confusing. Very. It's so confusing. Um, so before we get into this episode, wanted to remind you guys that at completehuman.com, we have a huge wealth of information and knowledge and articles and blogs and just education there for you guys to check out. So highly recommend taking a moment to head over there. Mm-hmm and do that. Also, we love reading reviews here. So please and thank you for your super kind reviews on our podcast. It helps us out. We love reading them. We love sharing them. So thank you again. Okay. Okay. Shall we start? Let's do it. Okay. So food labels. I think the best way to do this is to go over which, or I guess what, food labels mean what. Yes. So we've heard the term natural, right? You go to the store, you see the term natural on food items. What does that mean? Yeah. So, and and this is fun because this one actually really applies a lot to dietary supplements. And you guys have all seen this on the back of your, you know, whether it's like your powdered product or whatnot, natural flavoring, natural coloring, right? And so really what the natural designation is, is simply that there cannot be anything artificial. Now, what the nature of that natural is, is very ambiguous, right? And flavor chemists are brilliant at this. They'll take natural flavors and they'll combine them to create, you know, the uh, vanilla protein powder that you're drinking. So those natural flavors, they they are natural, but we're not oftentimes using vanilla as the flavoring component. Interestingly enough, one of the most natural flavors as a flavoring for chocolate is vanilla. Oh, interesting. And most people, it, once they taste it, they intuitively can't separate out the two of those. I found that fascinating. I had a flavor chemist tell me that one. But yeah, natural really is just the distinction that there's nothing not natural in it. Mm-hmm. And it's a very ambiguous, but very, you know, you're, you're not going to find yellow dye number five or, you know, some artificial flavoring or coloring in there. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, I've heard of certain really odd things like natural flavors coming from skunk glands or some weird thing. And I've heard, you know, obviously it's natural, right? Mm-hmm. It comes from an animal. It's not lab made, I guess, but it's still something where you're like, do I really want to put that in my mouth? <laughs> uh, that's what she said. Yeah. I'm just reading my coffee cup uh, for, for those of you who are listening to us. And if you are listening to us, we highly recommend you check out the YouTube because we are under our brand new neon sign today. I know. We have our new complete human sign. I know. It's a little exciting. But yes, there's so many different natural flavors and colors out there. Beetles is a perfect example. Yes. Of, you know. So yeah, there's some things that when you really stop and think about it, like, yeah, you know, not my favorite. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's it's benign and it is natural. Exactly. Okay. So the next one I would say is organic. Yeah. What does uh, organic even mean? 
Nobody knows. That's actually not true. So the USDA really has made this the gold standard for any type of labeling. And so you have two different tiers of organic. The first is basically organic, and that's going to be the seal on your food or your supplement or anything that says USDA certified organic. And what that means is that 95% of the raw material inputs in that product, except water and salt, are certified organic. And that certification is a process where farmers, producers, ranchers, they have to go through this verification process with the USDA. USDA comes out and audits them. And what they do is, is they basically verify that no pesticides, no herbicides, no fungicides, nothing toxic that we've deemed you know, non-organic has been applied to that farm or that ranch within the last three years. Now, that's a tough thing to do for a lot of farmers and ranchers. So that's one of the reasons that you see organic being such a higher price point in the market than you're just, you know, you know, look at organic mac and cheese versus regular mac and cheese. You know, there's oftentimes like a dollar differential, which on a low price point product like that, that's a significant amount of cost. Now, you also have a follow up kind of caveat to that is, is that you can say made with organic ingredients, if 70% of the ingredients in that finished product are made with organic ingredients. Now, however, you don't get the USDA certified organic seal on that one. And so what consumers have to really recognize oftentimes is that they are paying for that 95% USDA certified. But here's one of the things with organic, and, and I really want to get into this from the standpoint of regenerative. And this actually brings up my aunt. And you know, I'm going to call her out on this. She was one of the original shoppers at like Whole Foods or those organic grocery stores. And I remember she'd come back with a grocery bill. Now this is Colorado, like in the '80s, you know, with like a two and three hundred dollar grocery bill, which is you know, in California now with inflation, that's like a thousand dollar grocery bill or half a visit to Costco. That was supposed to be funny. Good one. <laughs> yeah, it's my second dad joke. But organic doesn't necessarily mean healthy. And I think what we really have to do is educate consumers that just because it says organic doesn't mean it's healthy. Organic potato chips mm-hmm. are still potato chips and, and they are cooked in you know corn oils or vegetable oils that even though those oils are organic, they're still really bad for us. So even though we think about organic in the terms of healthy, it's not always. Now, the other thing is, is that organic, based off the USDA website, says that you have to... You know, you have to apply soil health principles to organic, which includes tilling. And what we found in all of our research on regenerative agriculture is tilling is actually one of the worst things that you can do for the soil. That's what causes the erosion of the soil or the topsoil and gives us all of that dust bowl type of stuff that we're so adamant in preventing with regenerative agriculture. So organic, even though it really has set a precedent and is probably the industry leader in some of the things that we can look for, for health really needs to be modernized based off of our scientific understanding of what truly is healthy. Right. So it goes to show that if a label does say organic, it makes more sense to read the actual ingredients to know the quality of food that you're putting in your mouth. You know, it can say organic, of course, but it could be organic corn oil or whatever, right? Exactly. You want to know exactly what the ingredients are. So I think it's a huge, huge, valuable point there. Yeah. And now that's traditionally on, you know, your agriculture, your vegetables, things like that. Now, when we get into meat products, same thing, right? Now that USDA certified organic beef, chicken, whatever, they have to be fed organic input materials. So organic crops, you know, whatever the case may be. So again, even though it's an organic beef product, it could be organic corn. Exactly. Or, you know, whatever they... Yeah. And what we found, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, is that grain-fed cows had a omega-6 to omega-3 ratio that was just off the charts. So what we know is is that when we feed cows grass, grass-fed, grass-finished cows, that omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is very healthy. So even though those cows are eating organic corn, it's still not a healthy food product. Scary out there. Or I should say, you know, let let me requalify that. It's not as healthy. Mm -hmm. And and, and so, you know, we we definitely need to quantify some of those statements. So I, I apologize to the audience for being a little more flippant with my words. 
Right. So organic grass fed would be grass fed and grass finished. Right. Would be the correct term. And actually, I think that's on the list. So we'll, we'll chat about grass fed and grass finished in a second. Yes. And speaking about animals, cage free. I've oh. seen this all over the place too with eggs and all that. So explain that. Uh, cage free is marketing 101. It is epic BS. Really? Yes. And I didn't realize this until I actually kind of got involved in the regenerative agriculture movement. And I recognized where our eggs come from, right? We eat a lot of eggs. I like eggs. I, I'm, you know, I was inspired by Rocky all those years ago where he cracks open his dozen raw eggs and drinks it down before it goes running through the streets of Philadelphia. That'd make me barf, by the way. But, you know, that's that's a conversation for another time. So, you know, eggs were always just those. You get them in your styrofoam, white eggs, and that's that's your eggs. Cage-free was like the next generation. Now, here's something interesting. We've all seen pictures of hen houses, right, where eggs are born. In a hen house, the size of the cage that those hens are in are eight and a half by 11. It's a standard sheet of paper. They can't even move. They can't even move. Right. But what we found is so cage free means that they're still inside. They're just not in a cage. And interestingly enough, there was a research project that was done on this that showed that cage free, there was like more violence. There was, you know, there was less production. There, you know, there was like these, these chickens weren't actually as healthy in the cage free environment as they were in the caged environment. Now that's scary in both respects because the cage is horrible. You know, to spend your entire life on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Well, also, doesn't that make sense? There'd be less violent or sorry, more. More violence if they're cage free because if they're caged they can't fight they can't fight yeah yeah <laughs> but i do i would as a very empathetic animal loving person i would assume that if they're f- more free they'd be at least a little happier i don't think that there's a litmus test to test the the chicken's happiness but <laughs> the way that i always pictured cage free after i did the research on this was like looking at pictures of a new york city subway depot before COVID, where it's like a million people packed into a you know a tiny area, you can't move. You you know it, it's just claustrophobic. It's it's not outside. It's underground. If someone farts, it just ruins the day for everybody. <laughs> so cage free is not what we should be looking for. So for really, eggs. it's a psychological, emotional tie to the consumer. Totally. When I think of it, I think, oh, they're roaming the grass, they're outside, they're getting sunshine and fresh air, they're running with their friends, like they're happy. (laughs) They have cocktail parties every night. Yes. And that is the challenge with a lot of these labels, Labels. is is really how much of them are true impact to the health and the wellness of us and the animal, and how much of it is just BS marketing. Mm -hmm. Cage-free is absolutely one of those. So if you see cage free on there, definitely, you know, look to the next step, which is I think where we're going to go with with our our next one. Before we move on, question though, I don't know if you know this, but I'd be so curious to test the nutrient density or the profile of the eggs that are considered cage free versus in the cage. And if the if the hap, if they are happier, if they'd produce better hormones, if they'd have better nutrients because of that. Interestingly enough, I did a deep dive into this one and what I found is is that by and large there's not a significant difference between your caged non-organic egg and your organic free-range pasture-raised egg. So interestingly enough, not a significant difference there. In nutrition. In nutrition. So really what we're talking about So really is- you're just supporting the efforts to keep the animals happier. Yeah. Now, basically. now again, I, I also believe that incremental wins equal, you know, or, or small corrections equal big victories in the long run, right? Yeah. So even though there's not a significant difference, there's a small difference. And so if we extrapolate that small difference to how much we consume eggs on a daily, weekly, monthly basis over a lifetime, there is a significant mm-hmm. difference. But by and large, not a big one. Where the true value in looking at some of these certifications, especially on the egg side or the chicken side comes in is, is the quality of life for that animal. Right. Okay. So next one is free 
range. Free range. That's very on topic here. It is. And, and you know, you'd think, oh, well, cage free. So that's good. Free range must be even better. And it's really not. What free range is, is a classification that says that a chicken farm, a hen house has been audited and that rancher or farmer has put in a door giving that chicken access to outside areas. That rancher or farmer never has to open the door. So this is one of those bullshit type of you know classifications where you go through just enough hoops to qualify for something, but you don't actually have to prove anything. So so you can have a door, but you don't have to actually prove that the animals are going outside. Correct. Or that you're allowing them to go outside. Correct. Now, and I'm not a chicken farmer, so I don't know if there's additional labor, if there's additional cost basis in allowing those chickens to go out and then having to bring them back in or, or what that is. But it would appear from all of the research on this one that it's just a door that says free range. That's it. Interesting. Yeah, a little okay. sad. A little bit. All right. So pasture raise then. Pasture raise. Pasture raise is is definitely the gold standard when we get into this, but there's no USDA classification for pasture raise. So that's really a designation that a farm has taken upon itself. Now there are certain certification programs within egg producers that'll say like certified humane or things like that. So what we really want to look for is a pasture raised organic certified chicken. And what that does is we know that that chicken has had plenty of time outside. They can forage, they can eat naturally, they can scratch. There's like dust baths that chickens take. So there's all these different things that we know that pasture raised bring to the livelihood of that chicken, which ultimately makes them healthier, which ultimately hopefully produces better eggs, even though the data still seems to be a little iffy on that one. But yeah, that, that's when, when we're really looking at chickens, when we're really looking at eggs, that pasture raised organic, and then an additional level of certification saying that a company's gone in and said, this is a humane operation. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like it's also better for the soil. Oh, absolutely. Much better. Mm-hmm. Much better. If they're able to free range themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's that's going to be part of something. Or excuse me, pasture. Pasture. Pasture <laughs> range. Yeah. Pasture, pasture ranged. Pasture yeah. range themselves. Yeah. Awesome. So grass fed, obviously, you know, moving more into like the larger animals, but grass fed. Yeah. So grass fed really just means that the cow was given or the animal, the larger animal, mm-hmm. was fed on grass or forage for a part of their life. What you see, and this was more prevalent about three to four years ago when the whole grass-fed movement was really starting to capture a, a foothold here, is, is that grass-fed just meant that they spent part of their life on grass or forage. Mm-hmm. But what it didn't identify is what happened you know, for the last, let's just say, 90 to 120 days of their life. And, mm-hmm. and this is where things get a little wonky, right? Is we actually spoke to a rancher in Wyoming who opened opened up a USDA certified processing facility, which we just acquired for this very just reason. Just slide that in there. Just slide that in there. <laughs> we just bought and it. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, he bought this facility for this reason. He was, he was grass feeding, you know, open range, his cows. He spent a lot of time like really nurturing these animals, right? It wasn't just a commodity. It was something that he was passionate about. And he got really sick of taking them to auction and then having those auctioneers purchase them usually for a lot less than what they were worth. And then for the last, you know, let's say three to six months of their life, sending them to a feed lot where they were just force-fed corn to fatten them up. Mm-hmm. Now, this is one of the things that we're going to talk a lot about. We've brought it up in the past. We're going to continue to talk about it as regenerative becomes a platform for us in the future. Is Americans have gotten used to a certain flavor of beef. And that beef really is based off of that grain. And in that, there's a lot of sugar. There's a lot of carbohydrates. And so we've actually, just like everything else in the American diet, become used to a sweeter flavor. And the first time I had a grass-fed, grass-finished cow or you know a piece of meat, I was like, this is different. It wasn't as sweet. And it in the beginning, it wasn't that it was offensive. It was like, this is going to take some getting used to. Now that I've been eating that way for a long time, when I go have like a normal, you know, grain finished or grain, you know, then I'm like, ooh, this is gross. 
little too it's almost too sweet not too sweet but it, you can taste the sugar in it almost you can taste it and, and you can taste you know there's fat that comes with that and a lot of the flavor and meat comes from fat and so you know but i think that there's a really good you know environmental conversation health conversation around grass-fed and grass-finished mm-hmm. which i think is the next thing that we want to yeah. look for because grass-finished grass finished. and there's no real certification on these things yet and we need to get to a point where there's a, a governing body that does certify this because even grass-finished is very deceptive I I spoke with a rancher who basically through some loophole and some ambiguous, you know, kind of ruling on this, was able to spend the last 30 days of the cow's life feeding them donuts, like 30 pounds a day of donuts. And it fattened them up and it brought that sweetness level up. But somehow because of the type of donut he was giving them, it it fell under grass-fed, grass-finished. So these are these things with these labeling that you really have to peel back the layers and figure out which one of them is really hyper-focused and, you know, audited and ensuring a standard that allows us to know that that's what we're eating versus some of these things that are completely ambiguous and more just marketing. Yeah. It's kind of sounds like abuse, like force feeding them donuts. I mean, that's, it's, that's, I have a hard time hearing that knowing that that's even happening out there. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, yes, it's abuse and I I don't want to be flipping about this, but you know, is it abuse to give anybody 30 pounds of donuts a day? I mean, we'd all be pretty happy with it. We'd be dead after 30 days. Well, we've talked about this with, you know, children and, you know, parents giving their kids certain things every day all the time. And, you know, what does that ultimately do for their kid's health? And then if the child doesn't have that choice necessarily, anyway, that's another topic, but it's, it's a good topic. Mm -hmm. It's an absolutely good topic. Okay. Well, on topic, (laughs) gluten-free. Gluten-free. Ah, I mean that that is as, it's as simple as it gets, right? Just devoid of wheat, barley, and rye, or some variation of those grains. And and here's I I like a gluten free because we have more people who are aware of the issues with gluten. But I also think that this is a conversation for a much longer podcast. Is is the way that we're producing gluten now in a non regenerative, very very kind of industrial way here in the U.S. using all the pesticides, using all the chemicals? Is that what is really causing celiac? disease or gluten intolerance. Because by and large, if you look back 30, 40, 50 years, the number of people diagnosed with celiac was very, very low. Non-existent, pretty much. And and you can argue that we didn't have the diagnostic skills, we didn't understand the disease, we didn't really... But but most of the time, it was because we didn't have these weird strains and all of the, you know, these... these Well, also, I think about like this evolution of peanut allergies now that children have in schools. I mean, it seems like there is this evolutionary movement happening with it's not just gluten it's peanuts it's milk it's other nuts it's other things where it's it's random yeah random shit <laughs> it's random shit and and if you in again historically if you look back there's a there's a whole conversation on whether or not yeah. we should be drinking milk whatnot yeah. but people didn't have the allergies back then because the the products were pure they did they weren't full of pesticides and hormones right. and fertilizers and i mean you know we learned like we know what glyphosate has done that stuff is is carcinogenic it's not like supposedly it has been proven to cause cancer but yet this is the thing that's been sprayed on our fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. for so long. Yeah, the U.S. has it a little backwards. I mean, we hear all the time people go to Europe, they have the bread there, the pasta there and all that. And they're like, oh, I feel great. Oh, yeah. No issues. I feel totally fine. I can eat that on a daily basis without any problems. They come back to the States. They eat the normal bread and you know pasta here, have massive issues. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I grew up in the kitchen of my family's Italian restaurant. I grew up on gluten. It was pasta and bread every single day. 
Yeah. Never had an issue. And I still don't for the most part, but if I eat more bread, I know I'm puffy for a couple days. For sure. For sure. So non-GMO project verified. Yeah. And again, that's a very simple one. So as we just talked about a lot of the things that we add to, you know, to our agricultural industry, the glyphosates, the pesticides, the fertilizer, all of that, GMO was really an extension to try to keep up with those. It was how do we genetically modify a crop to make it more resilient to, you know, pests, to make it more resilient to, you know, other environmental factors which were causing crop yields to drop. Genetic modification was really our way to try to control the uncontrollable. And and as we started to play God more with how we tried to improve crop yields, there was a law of unintended consequences, which is just really that, you know, nature finds a way. Ian Malcolm was right. And, And so, you know, when we actually look at regenerative agriculture and take a step back and kind of go back to the way things should be, we don't need all of these pesticides. We don't need all these fertilizers. We don't need to do the things that we've we've done that have ultimately caused environmental catastrophe, have caused health catastrophes the world over. It's like, you know, we're kind of dumb sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Well, we've talked a lot about land. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the seas. Ooh, You've worked closely in this industry, obviously, but MSC certified, friend of the sea, you know, you've heard these terms before with fish. So explain those. MSC is the Marine Stewardship Council. Friend of the Sea is, is another organization that really their focus is on ensuring sustainable fishing practices. I applaud their efforts. And even in speaking with Valentine Thomas, I think that we all recognize that they fall well short of where they need to be. There is a concerted effort to try to preserve our ocean's resources. We recognize, and we've talked about it on this show with, you know, with Enric Sala, with Phil Bresnahan, you know, with some of the guests that have really focused on on ocean health here that we're not doing enough. Mm -hmm. And with the collapse of the ocean environment, it doesn't matter what we're doing in regenerative agriculture, we're still up shit creek without a paddle. So MSE is a great thing that you can look for on a label that you know that there's some effort that's being made to ensure a sustainable fishing uh, operation. Same with Friend of the Sea, right? And these are nonprofit organizations that do their very best. Oftentimes, you know, China is the worst offender of overfishing. Uh, They're also the worst offender with some of like the slave labor that goes into fishing. You you also have uh, India, you have some other Asian nations that really just don't play by the rules. And so it's up to us to do more. And, and you know, looking for MSC, looking for Friend of the Sea is a great start, but I think there's so many things that we can do. And, and I highly encourage everybody to go to those websites and participate in some of the things that they recommend, you know, some of the daily actionable steps that we can do to ensure that we're not overfishing. Because once that happens, right, like once the fish are gone, the domino effect both on the, you know, up the food chain and down the food chain becomes prevalent including phytoplankton, right? We know that a significant percentage of carbon sequestration happens with the phytoplankton in our ocean. And if we completely cock up the ocean environment to the point that that phytoplankton goes away, we can't breathe. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how much organic we eat, how much grass-fed, grass-finished beef we eat. If we can't breathe or the cow can't breathe, well, then we're screwed. Yeah. I also think about even if a fish is wild caught, right? If we are fucking up our oceans so bad, even if it's a wild caught fish... Do I still want to put that in my mouth? <laughs> no, no. And, and and we know this, that the heavy metal toxicity that comes with people eating constant fish, I mean, they call it fish brain. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like mercury, heavy metals, you know, all of the stuff that we're dumping into our ocean. Yes, wild caught is better than farmed. You know, the Bering Sea is cleaner than, you know, the Pacific Ocean or the North Atlantic. So there's there's regions, but then all of a sudden, if we start marketing that, if we say, well, you know, we only want to eat fish from the Bering Sea, well, then now that becomes overfished. And then you ruin that ecosystem. 
you ruin that ecosystem. So one of the things that we we are going to talk a lot about is the regenerative diet, something you and I have been working on for a long time. And part of the regenerative diet is eating cyclically, you know, eating in season, especially with fruits and vegetables, but then also recognizing that you shouldn't be eating beef every day or chicken every day. But if we eat cyclically within our protein sources, we start to stabilize the entire ecosystem. There's not as much of a demand for salmon. There's not as much of a demand for beef. And then as we start to stabilize those markets, those economies, well, then we start to see kind of this regenerative proliferation that takes place in land and sea. And that's the ultimate goal of all of this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, any other labels you want to discuss? Or I think that's a good amount. That is a good amount. You know, the, the, We hit the main ones. We hit the main ones. And, and that leaves the non-main ones. And so we, we recognize that a lot of labeling is marketing. A lot of labeling is BS. And so there are going to be certain labels that you can see on a package that you know have no validation whatsoever. You know, and those could be things like you know, doctor approved or, you know, stuff like that. And to be candid, I mean, we've put some of those things on our labels, but, and this is the big but, is is that, you know, we do have a medical advisory board that says, you know, this is something that we would recommend. Certain labels that say like non-GMO or soy-free or dairy-free, those are all things to, to look for. But when it comes to validated, you know, credentialed things, you know, the things that we really want to make sure that we're looking out for are organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, non-GMO project verified. That's a big one. I love this one. And again, I, I'm going to harp on the vegans on this one. I apologize, but Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger are both made from genetically modified soy. Now, that genetically modified soy has a level that is concerning of glyphosate. So you get a contingent of what I would consider the vegan population, and I'm generalizing, that are like, no, GMO, you know, all of this. And then their predominant go-to market strategy is genetically modified soy. Questionable. It's all questionable. You know, the reality is, is you know, if we're eating healthy and we're supporting the supporting the companies that are feeding us healthy products, then we don't have to worry about the large corporations. And and don't get me, there's some good ones out there. There really are some good corporations out there that are taking an active stance in this, but there are some bad ones out there. And it's really up to us as the consumers to educate ourselves so that we know we are shopping and we are supporting with our checkbooks. Mm-hmm. Do people use checkbooks anymore? <laughs> I saw one lady at the grocery store do it and it just took so long. Nah. I hope people aren't using them more. No. Nah. Uh, yeah, our our visas, our you know, our yeah. American Expresses is, is shopping appropriately so that we continue to support the labels and the producers who are backed by these labels to ensure healthier people for a healthier planet. I love that. So just as a quick recap, so if you're shopping for eggs, you would suggest pasture-raised organic. Pasture-raised organic, absolutely. And then as far as the larger animals, grass-fed, grass-finished, mm-hmm. ideally regeneratively raised. Yep. Um, and then as far as fish... MSC, friend of the sea. MSC, friend of the sea, wild caught. Yep. If possible. If caught. And definitely, if you can, look for non-GMO project verified. Mm -hmm. Great. I love it. Yeah. And with those, you've now laid the foundation for shopping for healthy labels and laid the foundation for at least understanding your food sources and what you can and can't eat. Now, if we start to pair that with what we talk about all the time is diagnostic testing, mm-hmm. now you have an amazing foundation from which you know you know what to eat when you go to the grocery store Yep. or when you order directly from us at, at our latest venture. Exactly. All right. Cool. Wow. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another rapid fire edition of the Complete Human Podcast with your host, Jana Breslin and Evan DeMarco. We will see you next week. Thanks, everyone.